it works in both ways. We can perform it as a prophylactic intervention to try to avoid the, the, the occurrence of lymphedema as well as as a treatment for those patients that have developed lymphedema already. This is the James Cancer-Free World Podcast. I'm Steve Wartenberg, and today my guest is Roman Skaraki. Roman is a plastic surgeon at the James and Stephanie Spielman Comprehensive Breast Center, a leader and innovator in the field of microsurgery. Today, we'll discuss ways to reduce the number of women who get lymphedema and how to reverse this painful swelling in the arms and legs that can occur after breast cancer surgery. The James was recently awarded a Center of Excellence Award from the Lymphatic Education and Research Network, recognition that Roman and his team are at the forefront of this cutting-edge microsurgery. Welcome, Roman. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start off with microsurgery. I, I know a little bit about it, and it's kind of amazing what you can do and how the blood vessels and how small of them that you can put together. So what is microsurgery? Yeah, microsurgery is a relatively young subspecialty within plastic surgery, and it really kind of was born in the late 1960s, 1970s, and popularized. And there are kind of two movements in China and in the United States, maybe some in Russia as well, that all were kind of working toward the same end. And the idea being that you can take... Um, uh, a, a portion of, a, of, of the body and really kind of move it to another part of the body. Uh, in order to make that survive, you, you have to reestablish the blood supply so that the, 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 the tissue is nourished with, with nutrients, oxygen, all the, all the time. Otherwise, it would starve and die. Right? Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. And so the, um, the, the microsurgery really is the part of where we're reconnecting those blood vessels. And they tend to be very, very small. They tend to be on the order of one to two, sometimes three millimeters, if we're lucky, in diameter. Is that like a, a thread of yarn or small? Yeah, or? so it depends on the yarn. Yeah. <laughs> but it's um, yes, that's true. Uh, they're, they're, uh, the kind of, I guess, the, the, if you think of a, a pencil lead, um, that's probably kind of on the, the, the smaller side and maybe a, a, the diameter of a pencil lead and then maybe, maybe a, um, a ballpoint pen filling, kind of the, the, you know, the lead inside of those, that, that would be kind of on the, the, the average diameter of what we deal with. So you can take um, something from someone's body and transplant it into their breast as you re after mm -hmm. the breast cancer surgery to reconstruct it and connect blood vessels from two different parts. Correct. That's exactly right. A and I've, we've seen this on TV and in, in doctor shows. You, you wear microscopes and vision enhancement goggles. And how do you do, like, how do you actually do it? Can you, what do you see? Yeah. So technically you're right. I, I mean, the, 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 Part of the, the, the ability to do that is, is entirely reliant on great optics. And so we have what we call loops, and these are these kind of very specialized glasses that magnify what we see very significantly. Um, and then for the, for the really detailed things, we actually use operating microscopes. And that kind of brings us into the world of lymphedema, where some of the, the, the vessels that we put together are even smaller than a millimeter or smaller than 0.8. Di uh, millimeters in diameter, so less than a millimeter. And that, that almost newer subspecialty is now coined super microsurgery because it's even smaller than the, the standard blood vessels that we connect. But again, we, we need specialized instruments and, and, and even operating microscopes that are, that are significantly more powerful than what we even had 10 years ago. 
And when you do this, you're not even looking at the person. You're looking into some sort of monitor or microscope, right? So, we're, yeah, we're looking indirectly at the person, and, and, uh, but, but through, always through the, the lenses of a microscope. You're absolutely right. So yeah. you, it's like your hands are almost disconnected from your eyes because you're not looking at your hands. How do you, that must take a lot of practice. That's, that's a great, uh, a great uh, observation. I've never even thought about it <laughs> that way, to be honest with you. But, yeah, it becomes kind of second nature. You... You, you, you're not directly looking at your hands or the instruments you're using right. or the patient, but it's, it's all done through the, you know, through the, once removed through the, uh, the optics of a microscope. Yeah. It's, it's like free throws, practice. That, I guess that's exactly what it is. You're, you're right. You're right. And that brings us to lymphedema, which we hear about a lot as is a uh, symptom or result uh, from breast cancer surgery. Mm-hmm. So what exactly is it and how does it occur? Yeah, so lymphedema. I mean, the, the lymphatic network altogether is extremely fascinating. Um, in the, uh, in, as a starter in the in the developing world, the developed world rather. Sorry, so in the United States, for example, the the primary cause of lymphedema is the treatment of cancer, um, because it, many cancers uh, utilize the lymphatic system as a as a pathway to migrate from one from the initial part of the body where the, the cancer occurs to other parts of the body, so the metast- metastases, so to speak. Um, and breast cancer is one of those cancers. Um, and so as part of the treatment of that cancer, we injure the lymphatic system, we remove lymph nodes. Um, and so that can then secondarily lead to lymphedema. And so let me step back even further and, and kind of describe why we have lymphatic fluid to begin with that accumulates. And that's really the what, what lymphedema is all about. And that's that every single cell in the body, so we're made up out of these building blocks that are tiny little building blocks that are essentially like the, if you want to liken it to a building, it's like the, the cinder blocks or the bricks of a building that make up our body. Every single cell needs to be nourished needs to be brought oxygen, nutrients, and, and refuse needs to be t- carried away. And so that happens via the bloodstream. At the, at the level of the cell, it then exchanges these molecules through the wall of the blood vessel as well as through the wall of the cell, and it's kind of like a coffee filter. It's a filtration mechanism. I've heard that phrase before, that the lymphatic system is your filter of the body. So that's the next step. And oh, exactly. Okay. No, but no, you're right. You're yeah. right. It's exactly right. Is that the, the next step is then during that filtration mechanism where the bloodstream actually provides oxygen nutrients to the cell and takes away the refuse from the cell, there's a little bit of fluid lost out the side and some protein molecules. And that, uh, that kind of, it floats around in no man's land. It's kind of like liquid mortar between the bricks. That fluid is lymphatic fluid. So it's a fluid that gets generated all the time and is kind of a byproduct of keeping the body alive. That fluid then gets collected in this really intricate bo- uh, system of, of channels that initially is just a very leaky vessels that take that fluid and those protein molecules in. They're then connected to larger channels that are not leaky anymore that can actually pump and remove that fluid. They deliver that fluid to the lymph nodes um, where it's examined. Um, and eventually it's then returned into the bloodstream again. But so it's this intricate system of surveying the surface of your body, of keeping track of what's going on on the surface of your body, and, and really is part of the immune system. So if you, for example, have a little cut or a little injury to your hand, that fluid bacteria that are in, that get in, that I guess enter through the break in the barrier um, will be collected in that fluid, will be presented, will be brought to the lymph nodes, presented to the lymph nodes that then mount an, an immune response. They send the white blood cells out, they send the antibodies out to to heal that cut and to to fight that infection. And so the 
the the lymphatic system then becomes this this really intricate surveillance system of the surface of the body presenting any abnormalities to the lymph nodes and so then in, in an invasive cancer where you have to remove some lymph nodes because the cancer is growing in them this causes a a break in the chain of filtration exactly right so then you take essentially you have the system that that handles the fluid, constantly siphons off that fluid and dumps it back in the bloodstream, it's like breaking the pipes. It's like taking one of those relay stations that usually examines the fluid and would pass it on, dump it back into the bloodstream, removing those completely. And, and the effect of chemotherapy and radiation all kind of act on that as well in, the, in that they introduce some additional scar tissue and, and, and some dysfunction of the lymphatic system. So all of a sudden you have a essentially a dead end to some of those 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 pipes that usually would have removed the fluid and then you get back up and you get swelling you get discomfort often associated with that swelling and other other symptoms that can be chronic absolutely right so with in the, in the recent years mm-hmm. through advances in microsurgery mm-hmm you're now able to do what to reduce the percentages of women who get lymphedema? Yeah, so the, the one, one technique, and I kind of alluded to that with the super microsurgery, is, is that we've been able to image and identify those little lymphatic channels that generally carry that fluid away, take that, that fluid out of the extremity, for example, in the, in the case of a breast cancer, um, out of the upper extremity, out of the arm, um, and dump it back into the bloodstream. So we can identify those little channels where they've been cut or further downstream where they're having a problem in, in, in getting rid of that fluid. Um, and we can actually create a small bypass. We can, we can interrupt that channel and we can connect it with a little um, venule, a blood vessel, and dump the fluid uh, into, the, into the venous system, into the bloodstream to carry it away. Are you seeing this in real time as you're operating on, on a person? We are, yeah. The, the imaging allows us on several levels to see that in real time. And so we, are, we can be very, very specific about where we actually make our little incisions. We know that there's going to be a, a usable lymphatic underneath, and we know that there's going to be a little venule. And then with the operating microscope, we have various filters on there that can actually show up that, that, that dye that we utilize in order to, uh, to visualize those, those channels. And we can see in real time what, what we're going to connect. And then obviously... Um, with the magnification, we can we can reconnect those, and then and then afterwards uh, uh, confirm that there is good flow across that little connection that we've made. So today, as compared to ten or twenty years mm-hmm. ago, with these new advances you just described, how how much are you able to reduce the odds of of, of someone getting lymphedema? So I think that and and you you kind of introduced that topic already, and I think it's really exciting. Is is that there we kind of differentiate between the prophylactic approach where we can try to um, uh, try to avoid uh, a patient uh, getting lymphedema by, by performing the surgery at the outset, at the time that those lymph nodes are removed, versus those patients that where we didn't anticipate that they needed the surgery, for example, or they didn't, weren't offered the surgery that have already developed lymphedema. So it works in both ways. We can perform it as a prophylactic intervention to try to avoid the, the, the occurrence of lymphedema as well as as a treatment for those patients that have developed lymphedema already. And, and 10, 15 years ago is just, I think, the, the very beginning of this technology. And, and I think we've really, it's become something that um, many centers now offer as kind of the standard of care. So it's, it's a, a little bit of a revolution, I would say, in terms of the, the treatment of lymphedema. 
So are you able to say a percentage or, or is that? Absolutely. So for, for the prophylactic um, intervention, I think. Preventative. If, preventative, exactly. The preventative one. Um, if we don't intervene and the patient has, an, for example, for breast cancer, an axillary clearance, the removal of all of their lymph nodes in the axilla because there is some tumor in some of them. Um, that patient, in combination with chemo and radiation therapy, which generally is required for that patient population as well, is that patient it has a really a 40% chance of developing lymphedema postoperatively. Without you doing without surgery. Correct, correct. Um, so if we intervene and if we perform this uh, preventative bypass, um, we can bring that risk down to somewhere between 4 and probably 8%, so a 5 to 10-fold decrease right. in risk. So that's important for women and their caregivers to know as they Absolutely. plan out their care to Absolutely. go to a, a cancer hospital that offers this type of microsurgery. Absolutely. And I think, to me, that's actually one of the most exciting areas right now in that sense that we, as I said, we can apply this also after the fact for the treatment of lymphedema. Um, but so far, and, and, and certainly our results also, our early results with this, because we've been doing this for about two and a half, three years now that we've been offering it, have been so exciting that that um, the 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 um, uh, the penetration, I guess, the the the, the effect uh, seems to be much more um, uh, much more complete with with the treatment of lymphedema. When we apply that technique, we we get a partial improvement. Usually, it's unusual that we get complete resolution of the disease. But if we do this in a preventative fashion. Those patients that don't develop lymphedema, and it's the vast majority, um, are perfectly fine. They notice no swelling whatsoever. Well, you mentioned that curative surgery, and we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, you're going to explain how, when you have a patient who already has lymphedema, how you're able to, through even more incredible advances in microsurgery, help them reduce their symptoms. A revolution in lung cancer treatment is happening at the James. We're proving lung cancer isn't solely defined by location and stage, but rather the individual molecules and genes that drive it. Simply put, there is no routine lung cancer. That's why our world-renowned specialists put their expertise towards treating one particular lung cancer, yours. At The James, we go beyond the routine to prevent, detect, treat, and cure your lung cancer. To learn more, call 1-800-293-5066. I'm back with Roman Skaraki, a microsurgeon at the James and Stephanie Spielman Comprehensive Breast Center. And Roman, we, you gave a great rundown on preventative lymphedema surgery, but women who had surgery five, 10 years ago, or even women who had surgery more recently at a, a cancer hospital that didn't have the specialists such as yourself and have developed lymphedema, there's ways you can help them, right? No, you're absolutely correct. Um, I think that there, there are really two techniques that we employ routinely for those patients uh, for the treatment of lymphedema. And one of them is, again, the, the, the same type of technique where we perform the bypass, where we attach little lymphatics to blood vessels. Um, uh, but also we have the ability to transplant lymph nodes from somewhere else in the body to the affected area. So you can take a lymph node from somewhere else in the body and put it in that armpit area that you talked about where the, the draining has ceased. Correct, correct. And so we, we 
we individualize it a, a great deal, I would say. We don't always place it into the armpits, and it just depends on where the person has the majority of their swelling. Okay and how significant the scarring is in the armpit. Sometimes, actually more commonly, I would say we put it into the distal forearm just because that's where the majority, the epicenter of the swelling tends to be the worst. The distal forearm is below the kind elbow? Kind of below the elbow, exactly. Somewhere between the wrist and the elbow is usually what would the area that we choose. But uh, having said that, um, we also will perform two-level reconstruction. So we will place something in the uh, in the forearm between the elbow and the uh, and the wrist, um, and we may place a second set of lymph nodes into the armpit in those patients that have a, a lot of changes from their prior surgery. So that there's a very significant degree of of scarring. Sometimes they even have some range of motion limitations of the uh, of the um, the shoulder region, and so those patients that we would we would considering placing uh, transplants into both areas. So I, I've talked to and met a couple of women who have had lymphedema. I mean, their arms and sometimes their legs literally are swollen fifty percent the normal size, even sometimes mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. And you're able to turn this around. Yes, there now now it's it we we hate to use the word cure because I think that mm-hmm. we really are looking at symptom improvements w- with most of those women and um much of that also depends on what the functionality of the existing or, or remaining lymphatic system is like. The, the better the function is, the more complete the response is after our therapy. And the, the, the way to kind of imagine is if you have a significant amount of, uh, of scar tissue, of damage to the pipes that we talked earlier that carry that fluid, there is going to be little pockets that are probably already isolated that are probably cut off from this uh, from this drainage pathway so the earlier we can get to those patients the sooner in the disease process the the more complete the response tends to be um Go ahead. Sorry, Steve. I I know there's no such thing as a a typical patient but or typical surgery, but what can be the range? I'm just curious, is this like a two to three hour surgery or can it be longer? And obviously it it, it depends on how how many uh, lymph nodes are impacted, but Give us a sense of what these surgeries are like. Yeah, so if we're doing a single level, so let's say we're taking a packet of lymph nodes and we're transplanting them to the forearm, in, in, at our center that usually is about a three to four hour surgery. If we're doing two sets of lymph nodes, I would say about a four to six hour surgery. Uh, because again, it, it implies yeah. that we uh, take the blood supply from somewhere else, and we have to hook up those little tiny little blood vessels to make the keep the keep the bl- uh, the the lymph nodes alive, keep them perfused, keep the blood flowing through them. Where, where are the most common areas that you'll get these replacement lymph nodes from? Yeah, that's that's a great topic of discussion, just because it's. Um, uh, there, there isn't one area, and and we've kind of gone through an evolution over the last ten, fifteen years that this that, that this technique has been around. Uh, traditionally, the the first area that the lymph nodes were removed from was the groin, um, and and then folks have kind of looked around because there's always the risk of um, damaging the lymphatics in the area where you take the lymph nodes from and creating lymphedema exactly further right. down the body exactly right and that's kind of the most right. dreaded complication yeah. obviously for any patient and and their care provider i mean we we um, we are very worried about that and so folks have kind of moved away from the groin and have have experimented with uh, um, lymph nodes that are lower down in the armpit um, some folks will take it from the uh, from the lower neck uh, or the area just underneath the chin. 
Um, and they all have their advantages, I would say, in terms of kind of the ease of accessibility, the the, the redundancy of lymph nodes that are in those areas. Um, um, and uh, but they all have their, their their pitfalls as well, especially the uh, the axillary, the armpit ones, and the the upper neck as well as the groin ones. They've all been implicated in uh, in potentially um, resulting in lymphedema of that the site where they were taken from. Um, and they're they're I mean it's a, a rare occurrence, but it does occur, and it's obviously a very very dreaded. So with occurrence. each patient, you are dis- determining where's the best place. To get these correct, replacement correct, notes. correct, and and I'll tell you one. I'm uh, here at, at at the Ohio State uh, uh, and and at the James. What we've done is is we've we've gone through the same iteration as our colleagues, kind of internationally. And one of the things that that worried us so much is this 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 you know the the the, the chance to potentially give a patient lymphedema in the right. site where the nodes were taken from. And for that reason, we've kind of explored some other areas, and we've really gone uh, almost exclusively to the abdomen now, to the belly, as our donor site where we where we can take these lymph nodes from, simply because uh, we feel fairly confident that there's no risk of developing lymphedema uh, by removing some of those lymph nodes. Well, when you say we discovered this, it was actually you, from what I understand. Well, You're being a little modest here. I think you're being kind. <laughs> <laughs> but how? How? But I. I think I'm accurate, though. But how how did you discover that this is a place that you can take the lymph nodes from, and that there will be a reduced the chance of lymphedema? Um, so, so I, I, I want to deflect that a little bit. I want to say that it's definitely always a team approach. I think that that's what makes this center so special. I think is is that just you know we have so many folks working on the same problem and discussing and brainstorming that. Uh, that I, I don't think it, it wouldn't be fair to take credit for it by okay, myself. So, so you and your team at <laughs> there the we go. I like discovered that. this area. <laughs> I <Okay>. love that. <laughs> um, uh, well, the, the reason that we kind of, I, would, I don't want to say stumbled across it, but we, as plastic surgeons, we, we perform other types of surgeries, uh, reconstructive surgeries. And so we're, we're, the abdomen isn't an area that we're not familiar with. Uh, and during some of those uh, procedures that we, we just noticed that there is a, 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 you know, a significant redundancy of lymph nodes in that area and that the blood supply is something that we can control very nicely. Um, and so that's led us to to then do um, uh, studies on, on on the type of lymph node, the, the the blood supply with those lymph nodes, and and that's really convinced us that that's uh, an, an ideal donor site. And there have been other centers now that have adopted the same. And and, and again, I, I think I want to give full credit there. Are some of my colleagues in, in other centers that we've we, you know we've discussed this early on. And the Omentum, for example, is one area that that multiple centers now have are using, and that that has has uh, become. Uh, I, I would say one of the favorite donor sites. Um, one area that we're, I would say, definitely the pioneers here at uh, the Ohio State University is what we what we call the mesenteric lymph nodes um, that I think are very unique and are ideally suited for this type of transplant. Where, where are they? The mesenteric. Lymph nodes? The mesenteric lymph nodes are are really um, are very interesting in that they're probably among the most. Um, Numerous. Uh, there's a, a, a tremendous amount of redundancy built in. You, we probably all have more than 60, 80, 90 lymph nodes in that area. It's, it's, a, a, um, it's a leaflet, essentially, that, that uh, supplies the blood uh, flow to the, the small bowel and at the same time also um, uh, has a, a tremendous network of lymphatic channels and lymph nodes in it. And so you're now starting to use the lymph nodes from here in surgeries. So we've done that for the I would say the past almost five years now is when we've uh, that we've been using those and we've been very very happy with that and 
and it's a it's an operation that has been around for uh, probably more than a hundred years at this stage, uh, in the sense that, that bowel resections have been performed okay. for a long, right. long time, and so they would remove that portion um, as part of a bowel resection. And there's never been a reported case of lymphedema in this area, so we feel fairly confident. This mil- this has been performed millions of times, so we feel fairly confident in saying. Our, our procedure will not cause lymphedema at the donor site at the area where we take it from. That's great. So you, not just you, but you and your team are nationally recognized experts in this. So does that mean you're getting people with lymphedema from all over Ohio and beyond who come in for this type of replacement lymph node surgery? We, we do, yeah. Yeah, we, we're happy to provide that service to anybody, I mean, nationally, internationally. And we certainly have had folks that have sought us out um, we're, we're not, I don't want to say we're the only ones. We're by no means the only ones in the country. But I would say that we have a, a, a really comprehensive team that, that cares for these patients. Um, and I, I, I think that we're certainly on the cutting edge with some of the other major centers around the United States. Could that be a frustration for you and your team that sometimes a woman who had surgery four or five years ago at a center that's a cancer hospital is not quite as advanced, they had a surgery that if they'd only used the techniques you just discussed, we could have avoided this? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's a, that's a philosophical question for everything in medicine, I feel like, almost in the sense that, I, I mean, even for us, you know, we've evolved so much in the last five, ten years that um, we're proud to, pre- to be able to offer things to patients now and individualize their care in a way that we were not able to do ten years ago because we just didn't have the knowledge. Um, but, but yes, I mean, it's, uh, we would love to be able to get to all of those patients that are at risk um, before they before they have their surgery and be able to be part of that team in order to try to minimize the risk of that occurring. But again, that's the word we want to get out to, Absolutely to right. women and anyone undergoing right. cancer yeah. surgery yeah. that's going to require yeah. reconstruction that make sure you have a surgeon that is going to perform these high-tech advanced surgeries. You're right. What is it that motivates you, that, that keeps you going to explore new areas to find lymph nodes from, to reduce the incidence of lymphedema, to get even better and better at, at helping people who already have it? What, what's motivating all this passion? I, I think a number of things. I think that um, certainly being in this environment, I think that you know, being surrounded by this incredible team of individuals, we have um, general surgeons that we work with. We have radiologists, interventional radiologists. We have teams of uh, PAs and nurses and uh, um, uh, interventional uh, internists that are all kind of sharing this interest, sharing this passion. And so we're, we get together and we are constantly discussing new ideas. And I think just being in this environment, the, the James is, is an incredible place to to germinate ideas and to and to be able to uh, um, bounce them off other you know specialists, world experts, really, and and uh, and to be able to kind of bring them to fruition. Um, I think also as plastic surgeon, I think I think plastic surgery as a whole kind of attracts individuals that tend to be. Um, Creative problem solvers. Problem solvers. I think that's a great. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, Because I I think our specialty is is born out of uh, out of kind of bringing in missing links or something, or you know, bringing in things that that didn't exist before and coming up with new new ideas. And so I think most of our wheels are constantly turning and are trying to improve situations. You're right, and there's a misconception out there that. Plastic surgeons are mostly do uh, 
enhancements and making people look better, but that's not the case at all, and particularly in cancer surgery where it's just so vital for the quality of life of the patient. No, you're absolutely right. I think that um, I would say in, a, in an integrated ca- integrative cancer center like the James where their multidisciplinary care is just, just a way of life, um, I would say that we're involved in probably a good 40-50% of the care of patients, certainly with breast cancer. We, we're involved with our neurosurgical ca- uh, colleagues. We're involved with our head and neck uh, uh, surgical colleagues, um, uh, the sarcoma teams. I think we, we I like to think we play an integral part in all of those uh, areas, and we're um, always able to and, and happy to provide, an, I think, an improvement in quality of life and form and function for, for our patients. Oh, I think you do play an integral part, and thanks for filling us in on just how integral and how much you can help people with the quality of their life. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Ohio State University Comprehensive Cancer Center, Arthur G. James Cancer Hospital, and Richard J. Solov Research Institute. For more information, check out our website, cancer.osu.edu.